Hello and welcome to the Lancet Podcast, brought to you this week from New York City. I'm Rebecca Cooney. And I'm Aaron Van Dorn, and it's Wednesday, July 9th. It is a fantastic warm summer day here in New York, and this week we're continuing the conversation about the Lancet's Health of American series launched last week and discussed in last week's podcast with Lancet editor Richard Horton and Dr. Ursula Bauer from CDC. This week, we're focusing on a series paper concerning the alarming rate of U.S. deaths caused by injury and violence based on the work from the CDC. We'll also be discussing the CDC's role in global health in an interview I did with Dr. Ann Shuket. More on that in a few minutes. But first, nearly 80% of deaths in the first three decades of life are caused by unintentional injury or violence, a truly shocking statistic. Earlier, Aaron spoke to Dr. Tamra Hagrick from the U.S. Centers of Disease Control, one of the authors of that paper, to find out more. Uh, my name is Dr. Tamara Hagrick. I'm the Deputy Associate Director for Science in the Division of Unintentional Injury Prevention at the CDC Injury Center. One of the most shocking findings of your report is that nearly four-fifths of the deaths of people under 30 in the United States are due to accidents and injuries, nearly one death every three minutes. What are the main drivers of these deaths? Well, it's very concerning that injuries and violence disproportionately affect young people. Um, In the first three decades of life, more people die from injuries and violence than from any other cause. We know that about 60% of injury deaths among people aged 1 to 30 are caused unintentionally. So, for example, from motor vehicle crashes, drug overdoses, falls, suffocations, and drownings. About 20% are due to suicide, and another 20% are from homicide. And deaths are really only the tip of the iceberg. There's millions more injuries seen in emergency departments every year. And injuries and violence have other physical and mental health consequences that can become chronic, which results in significant costs to our healthcare system. The drivers of these deaths depend on the type of injuries and violence considered. So, for example, 75% of prescription drug deaths were from overdose of opioid painkillers, such as oxycodone. And the rise in overdose deaths in the recent decade coincides with an increase in the supply of prescription painkillers. So this indicates that one of the drivers can be found within the health system itself, that is, inappropriate prescribing by some physicians. But there are different drivers for violence, um, and these drivers interact. Violence is not due to a single cause. So, for example, homicide is the second leading cause of death for people aged 15 to 24, and suicide was the third largest in 2010. And there are common risks for homicide and suicide among young people. They include difficulty solving problems in nonviolent ways, alcohol and drug use, and conflict with family and peers. And broader community risks also increase the risk for violence, such as witnessing violence and exposure to crime and drug networks. One of the major findings of your report was that rates of suicide and homicide are unequally distributed across ethnic groups and between men and women. Are those differences driven by larger social and economic trends? And if so, what immediate practical steps can be taken to address the disparities between groups? Well, some groups are disproportionately affected by violence, but it's more important to remember that violence and injury can affect all members of a community. But multiple factors influence the risk for violence, including social and environmental factors, such as concentrated poverty, low educational attainment, and unemployment. And these factors contribute to isolation, low community participation, and lack of access to social services. And of course, individuals' characteristics, experiences, and relationships also play an important role. But understanding which subgroups are most vulnerable can help us direct prevention approaches to the groups that have the greatest need. And by monitoring disparities over time, we can learn whether prevention progress is being made. Violence among all people, including those at higher risk, can be reduced by evidence-based strategies. 
approaches that increase the availability of health services and prevention programs, and improve access to employment, safe housing, and high-quality education can help address the underlying factors and reduce the incidence of violence. You say in the report that accidents and injuries are not inevitable, but can be prevented. What steps would you recommend to reduce the number of injuries and fatalities? What interventions have proven effective in the past? Well, injuries and violence can be prevented by strategies that change behavior, policy, and the environment. Interventions that address the social and economic determinants of health have great potential, as well as strategies that change the context to make the safest decisions the easiest ones. And in many cases, the types of prevention strategies that work vary across the type of injury. So, for example, laws that promote the use of seatbelts and child safety seats can reduce motor vehicle-related injuries. Just to give you a sense of the large impact that prevention efforts can have, laws that require children in motor vehicles to be restrained in child safety seats can decrease fatal injuries by 35%. And in the area of prescription drug overdose, improving proper prescribing of painkillers and access to treatment for substance abuse can markedly reduce fatalities. And for violence prevention, early childhood home visitation, school-based programs, and even therapeutic foster care can be shown to work. So for instance, school-based programs that teach children social problem-solving skills and how to regulate their emotions can result in a 29% reduction in violence among high schoolers. And finally, it's important to recognize that in clinical settings, injury prevention is just not integrated fully into clinical practice. Patients are not as familiar with ways to prevent injuries as they are with ways to prevent other killers, such as heart disease. So to address this, healthcare providers can implement screening and referral for injury risk factors, such as depression, domestic violence, and alcohol misuse. And health systems can integrate clinical guidelines for injury prevention right within the electronic health record so that clinicians can easily follow evidence-based protocols. And I think what's important to realize is that injuries and violence are not inevitable. They can be prevented. And action steps can include providing data to decision makers, framing injuries and violence as preventable, identifying cost-effective and evidence-based interventions, and integrating injury prevention in clinical practice. There really needs to be a partnership between the medical and the public health community. Well, thank you again for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks so much. And staying with the CDC, we now hear about the agency's role in global health, based on a viewpoint published last week alongside the main U.S. series. Here is Beck talking to one of the authors of this viewpoint, Dr. Ann Shuket from the CDC. I'm Dr. Ann Shuket. I'm the director of the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. You begin with a very important question. Why is an article about global health included in a special issue on health in the USA? Why should Americans be concerned about global health? You know, of course, diseases are just an airplane right away, whether it's the MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome virus, or measles importations. We're really interconnected in America with people all around the world. But there are a number of other reasons that the health of people around the world is important to Americans. The better health in other countries, the more stable the world is, the more economic resilience there is, which improves the markets for our products and goods. We also have the ability to learn from other countries. Sometimes we can get best practices or innovation from far away and bring that back home. And I think a key issue for Americans is that global health and promoting global health is the right thing to do and really expresses our values. 
The CDC has been instrumental in the great strides that the U.S. has made in reducing the number of HIV transmissions in resource-limited countries, yet there's still an enormous amount of work um, to be done to maintain that progress and to work toward the vision of an AIDS-free generation. Can you tell us more about some of the current programs that the CDC is involved with and what you think the biggest priorities and challenges are for the future? CDC is really committed to achieving an AIDS-free generation, and I think that we have made a lot of progress working as part of the U.S. government's PEPFAR program and still, of course, have a long way to go. Key areas for our focus include increasing treatment, increasing voluntary male medical circumcision, truly eliminating AIDS in babies through increased prevention of mother-to-child transmission. We're very optimistic about the potential for the B-plus approach to using antiretrovirals in women during pregnancy as the initiation for lifelong antiretrovirals, and then strengthening the link between care for HIV and tuberculosis. Those are areas where there's been huge progress, but we also have more to do. In terms of some of the challenges and opportunities, one of our priorities is to invest increasingly in indigenous countries programs. And so over the next several years, we hope to be turning more and more of the programs that have been run through international partners to homegrown partners, whether it's the governments or the non-governmental organizations that are indigenous to the countries. There's been progress in this transfer of leadership and um, direction of the programs and something that we want to be attending to. Uh, Another key challenge is that resources uh, from the U.S. government focused on PEPFAR and the global AIDS challenges are in a stable or decreasing phase while the work that we need to do is increasing as we scale up treatment, as we reach the populations that really do need to be reached. We know we need to do that in ways that are more cost-effective and that are both beneficial but also efficient. So I think there's um, room for us to hone our programs to transfer them as insofar as possible to the countries um, where the epidemic is busy. There's opportunities for us to um, transfer the programs to other to the countries themselves, but also to improve the efficiency and value that we get from the programs and their investments. So unlike HIV, which has affected the U.S. for the last 30 years, um, cholera hasn't been a major health threat in the United States in the last 100 years. After the recent reemergence of cholera in Haiti, alongside UNICEF and PAHO, the CDC has been a really major player in working with the public health system in Haiti um, in containment and monitoring the outbreak. What do you think still needs to be done there, and how do you convince Americans to actively support missions that seem to be really removed from our daily experiences? You know, I think Americans' hearts went out to Haiti after their earthquake and certainly in the wake of the horrendous cholera epidemic. CDC has been really committed to strengthen Haiti's um, public health system so that they're better prepared for these kinds of emergencies and can continue to improve the health of their own population. The cholera epidemic really exposed the tragic situation with water and sanitation in Haiti. This is something that really needs to be addressed, and many partners have come together to develop a 10-year plan for priorities for really eliminating cholera from, from Haiti. This will involve substantial long-term investments in water, sanitation, and hygiene, which will not only benefit 
patients control or elimination of cholera, but can reduce the large burden of diarrheal diseases that still occur there. But more so than just investing in water sanitation and hygiene is helping Haiti develop the capacity to address their own problems with a strong public health system. One of the key investments the CDC has been making is helping Haiti with a field epidemiology training program where they essentially develop the local leaders who will be able to analyze problems, identify solutions, and monitor their impact. We think that's the way to have sustainable improvement in other countries, and we're proud that CDC has been part of helping establish field epidemiology training programs in about 60 different countries. CDC is really proud of working in global health for more than 60 years and is extremely committed to partnership in the way that we work in international settings. I think that the world has become more and more interconnected, but more and more capable and Today, there are so many great partners who can work together to improve health of populations everywhere. Dr. Ann Shuket, thank you so much for speaking to The Lancet today. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Special thanks again to Dr. Ann Shuket and earlier to Dr. Tamara Hagrick. And also to Aaron. We've had a lot of fun doing this podcast this week in the United States. It's been a pleasure, Beck, and yes, it's really been interesting and great fun. Uh, And thanks to Richard Lane, who was over from London helping us get to grips with the podcast machinery. Thanks, folks. I feel um, a bit like Alfred Hitchcock doing a cameo in one of his movies. Um, I don't think I'm quite as heavy as Alfred Hitchcock, but anyway, it's been a real pleasure being out here with you both and um, hearing you do the interviews with authors from the fantastic U.S. series. And let's just hope that this is the first of many U.S. podcasts to come on thelancet.com. But in the meantime, it's goodbye from New York City. Bye. Bye.